0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: When the playwright and novelist Ayad Akhtar agreed to speak at the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, I knew I wanted him to talk about his first play Disgraced, which won the 2013 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. But I also knew I wanted him to talk about his own story of growing up in suburban Milwaukee, the son of successful immigrants from Pakistan. What neither of us knew at the time, however, was how he would manage to blend those different narrative strands into one captivating talk that so dramatically blends autobiography and performance. As Ayad begins, the last thing he was expected to become was a writer, let alone one celebrated for dramatizing the complexities and contradictions of Muslim Pakistanis in America. From the Sun Valley Writers' Conference, I'm John Burnham Schwartz, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, Beyond the Page.
1: A compendium of characters is how this talk has been built but what it's really gonna be is a story. Yes, the story of how the characters that populate my work, how they came to be. But that story is really at root, the tale of how I became a writer. A writer. My parents would never have predicted it. Would never have wanted to predict it. Both doctors, both immigrants from Pakistan, they came to this country in the late 60s. In the wake of JFK's science and technology push, getting a man on the moon and whatnot, the quotas for immigrants from the Indian subcontinent were eased, and Uncle Sam started bringing over scientific and medical talent. My parents came over on a State Department program that gave them visas, plane tickets, apartments, and jobs. Times sure have changed. Both my parents were the eldest of their respective broods and the first of their very sizable families to leave Pakistan and go west. I was the first kid on either side of those very large extended families to be born in America. That meant there was a lot of pressure on my folks to make sure I turned out all right. My mother, in anticipation of the first day of kindergarten, instructed me to say, when asked about what I wanted to be when I grow up, that I was going to be a neurologist. (laughs) My kindergarten teacher seemed very impressed that I knew what a neurologist was. I didn't. (laughs) There you have it. My parents' best laid plans for a career in medicine went irrevocably awry my junior year in high school. That was when I met a teacher who changed my life. Her name was Miss Durfler, She was famous in the semi-rural Wisconsin school district where I grew up, famous for changing kids' lives. I remember the morning before my first class with her, a kindly football jock sitting next to me in a homeroom asked what my schedule was that day. When I mentioned World Literature One in fifth period, he cut me off and said, dude, you've got Miss Durfler. She's gonna blow your mind. She did that and more. By the time I knew her, Miss Durfler was in her mid-50s. She'd been through five husbands. (laughs) She lived on 40 acres of land north of Milwaukee, deep forest country, where she got up every morning to tend a farm-sized garden and walk her 10 Great Danes before coming into school. This is all true. (laughs) She carried herself with an air, an almost regal bearing that was not in any way affected. It commanded respect, we didn't dare come to class late or chatter across the aisles when her back was turned. We didn't want to disappoint her. Looking back now, I recognize what that regal sense was, the resonance of someone fully committed to an authentic life. She was a great souled one, to use the Aristotelian locution. Very early in the semester, she assigned a story by Friedrich Durenmatt called The Tunnel. In it, a man wakes up on a train, not knowing how he got there. He asks those sitting around him if they know where the train is going. They don't. Some don't even seem to understand that there is a question. So preoccupied by their newspapers, or the crease in their trousers, or their arguments, he gets up and starts to make his way from car to car, inquiring with everyone he passes, to no avail. When he comes across the conductor, the conductor throws his hands up and points to the door leading to the engine car. Ask the man in there, maybe he knows. Our protagonist leaps across the gap into the engine where he finds a mute madman maniacally shoveling coal into the engine's furnace. No question to be asked, no answer to be gotten. That's when the protagonist sees a tiny window looking out the front over the furnace and sees that the train isn't even on the tracks, and experiences a moment of abject terror as he realizes the train is falling through what looks like an endless black abyss, a tunnel. I remember finishing and thinking to myself, what is this? I mean, is this even a story? The next day, Miss Durfler came into class and took her usual spot at the front of the table. She started class by asking us, what is the meaning of the story you all read last night? Meaning? That bizarre thing had a meaning? Had me fooled. No one raised their hands. I'm sure everyone was as confounded as I was. She asked again. More silence. Finally, she started to speak. The train is life. Every now and then, one of us wakes up to the question of what it is, where it's going. Those around us don't have an answer. Many don't even know there's a question. The one who would seek to know will eventually be forced to confront an unsettling truth that life is rushing us into a great blind unknown and that the soul's innate response to this is terror. I still recall the effect those words had on me. It was like lemon juice on milk, clearing away all the murkiness clearer, brighter, heightened, enlarged. I'd never felt anything like that. It was, I believe, the first authentically spiritual moment I'd ever experienced, a moment of real meaning, unlike the instrumental platitudes and tales promulgated in my childhood experience of religion. That moment in Miss Durfler's class was the moment I knew I was going to be a writer. I knew it with a knowing and a fire that never dimmed since.
2: So thanks to the remarkable Ms. Durfler, Ayad came to understand that he wanted to be a writer. But how to make that dream happen? If great literature tells us anything, it's that there is no such thing as a straight line to becoming who we are or might be.
1: Miss Flur was an extraordinary gift in my life, but one of her enduring influences on me was perhaps somewhat less propitious for my own writing, at least for the first 20 years. Her passion was for European modernism, and I spent much of my junior and senior years in high school reading deep into the continental experience from the books she pulled from her shelves. Rilke, Proust, Mann, Robert Musel, Hermann Broch, Sartre, Camus, Durenmont, as I mentioned. It was heady stuff a remarkable education for a high school student. But the more of this work I read, the more it seemed to plant a troublesome seed inside me. The notion that being the best writer I could be meant like writing like a European modernist. I couldn't see what was particularly European about my life as a kid of Pakistani immigrants in suburban Milwaukee, or what was particularly modernist. The people I knew weren't anything like the uncanny animal personas in Kafka parables, nor were they given to world-weary philosophical musings like characters in Beckett plays or Pinter plays, both of which Miss Durfler loved. There didn't seem to be anything particularly noble or elusive or astonishing about the kinds of struggles the community I came from was dealing with. I mean, in comparison, my family seemed ridiculous. My mom was still just trying to figure out what eggs and a big furry rabbit had to do with Easter. (laughs) And so my desire to be a writer became a kind of excuse to start working at becoming someone I wasn't. A flight from my native soil, if you will, that went deeper than the writing. Truth was, I'd grown up feeling there were irreconcilable, even vicious differences between my two cultures. And my solution to this dissonance was to bury it in an attempt to become the kind of writer Miss Durfler had taught me to admire. I learned French and German, I translated Genet, I read Freud, I memorized Brecht. I worshipped the Polish theater, I wrote recondite fiction about the limitations of language and the trappings of the self. I would make myself the writer I wanted to be no matter how hard I had to work at it. That was my mantra. It was clearly swimming upstream for me, but so be it. I was partaking, without knowing it, of the great American myth of self-renewal, rupture from the old, renewal of the self in the new. It's the American paradigm par excellence, mirroring the journey from the old world for new world shores. A paradigm that plays itself out even six, seven generations into the American experience, with folks leaving their primary families for newer surrogate ones, leaving heartlands for coasts, leaving social encumbrances behind for the liberation of new lifestyles. It wasn't just 9-11 that would make the fulfillment of this American myth impossible for me. Yes, it turned out increasingly after that fateful day that there would be insurmountable obstacles for someone like myself with a Muslim heritage, obstacles to being fully accepted as anything other than Muslim, whatever that meant to people, which was always something bad. So yes, there was the change in the world after 9-11, change in America, but this change met me at a moment when something else had started to happen to me. I was getting older. I was in my early mid-30s, still passionate, still an aspiring, unpublished writer, insolvent. (laughs) I was being more honest with myself, admitting that I knew something was wrong with my work. Here I was, I'd been scribbling away in one form or another for almost 20 years, and I still felt like I wasn't connecting. Not with the people I showed my work to, and truthfully, not with myself. I didn't feel like I had a sense of my voice. Not really. I started to wonder if my need to erase the imprint of my heritage was maybe not so much an act of will to be admired, but perhaps an instance of fear. Maybe it was an impulse that didn't need to be obeyed so much as questioned. Sometimes, all that's needed is the right question at the right time. In asking if maybe I needed to stop running, I did, kind of. In wondering what I had been running from, I slowly turned to look, and from that backward glance over my metaphorical shoulder, if you will, something extraordinary happened. Characters who seemed to be waiting in the wings for years and years for me to pay some attention stepped out onto center stage. I don't know how to describe it other than to say it was an explosion of creativity stories and people and recollections and colors and textures, accents, anecdotes, voices, above all, voices, above all, my own. I started to write a novel. It was my third, actually. The first two had been unpublished, and now I really understood why. What I was writing now felt so different, so much more simple, vital. I felt a kind of authority I'd never felt before. I was writing about a boy growing up in a Pakistani-American home in Wisconsin, whose life is upended by the arrival of a remarkable woman who transforms him. (laughs) Two of the main characters in the story were named mother and father. Everyone else was some version of someone I'd grown up with. Write what you know, I'd been told. I'd never taken the advice, not until it took hold of me. I remembered Miss Durfler mentioning that William Faulkner had once said of his own creative process that he just followed his characters around and wrote down what he heard them say. I remember thinking at the time that sounded like hooey. And here I was, it was happening to me. The first draft of that novel, American Dervish, virtually poured out of me. Eventually, the book would be published in 2012 in over 20 languages, and its publication would change my life. But back in 2008, when I finished that draft, I had no idea that would happen. All I knew is whatever has been ignited inside me is still churning away. A week or so after finishing that draft of American Dervish, I was sitting in a coffee shop when I started to hear a new voice. Unlike the voices in American Dervish, this was a voice I didn't recognize. Someone I didn't know. A man's voice. Worried. Intelligent with the ability to extend a verb's action across a dangling dependent clause in a spoken phrase and land a complex point with persuasive force. A lawyer. Right, he's a lawyer. I kept listening and started to write down what he was saying.
2: At this point, the playwright pauses, looking stage left, and then an actor, Rajesh Bose, steps to the front of the stage.
3: I had a meeting with a couple of the partners today, if you could call it that. I'm in my office, redlining a contract due at 6. Steven comes in with Jack, sits down, asks me where my parents were born. I said, India. That's what I put on the form when I got hired. Technically, it was India when my dad was born. But the names of the cities you've listed are not in India. Stephen says, they're in Pakistan. My father was born in 1946, back when it was all one country, before the British chopped it up into two countries in 1947. And your mother was born when? 1948. So it wasn't India anymore, was it? It was Pakistan. My clock is running and I'm wasting my time on a fucking history lesson turns out Stephen's been trying to ascertain if I misrepresented myself. It was all India, so there's a different name on it now. So what? He's been digging around. He knew about my name change. Your birth name is not Kapoor, Stephen says. It's Abdullah, why did you change it? What am I supposed to tell him? that I changed it so he wouldn't know my parents were Muslim?
1: Amir Kapoor, born Amir Abdullah, the child, like myself, of Pakistani immigrants. Now a corporate attorney with a background in litigation, working at a mostly Jewish law firm in New York City. Clearly attempting the same sort of flight from his culture of origin as I had. His tactics, though, were his own. When people ask him about his heritage, he answers India. He's using the historical ambiguities to avoid the pejorative connotations of answering truthfully. That's because he knows when Americans think of India, they think yoga, tandoori, (laughs) Bollywood. When they think Pakistan, they think terrorism, Islam. And Islam is something Amir wants nothing to do with. In continuing to listen to Amir week after week, month after month, a play was born which would eventually become disgraced, the story of Amir's attempts to hide his Muslim Pakistani origins from his colleagues at work. When his ruse is discovered, Stephen, his boss, a fundraiser for AIPAC, an intimate of Benjamin Netanyahu, starts to push him out. Things come to a head at a dinner party one night where one of Amir's colleagues from the firm is present. Smarting from the fresh humiliations he's experienced at work that day, and with a few too many scotches in him, Amir starts to tear into Islam with eloquent vengeance. He wants to demonstrate the evident absurdity that anyone could ever think he had sympathies with his childhood faith. Amir's guests push back against this animus, try to rebut his legalistic attacks on Islam, and that's when Amir goes all in. He tears off the bandage beneath which a wounded self-loathing has long been festering. In the process, he inadvertently stumbles into the unspeakable. Isaac,
3: you still don't get it. The Quran is about tribal life in a seventh-century desert. The point isn't just academic. There's a result to believing that a book written about life in a specific society 1,500 years ago is the Word of God you start wanting to recreate that society. After all, it's the only one in which the Quran makes any literal sense. That's why you have people like the Taliban, they're trying to recreate the world in the image of the one that's in the Quran. And here's the kicker, this is the real problem. It goes way deeper than the Taliban. To be Muslim, truly, means not only that you believe all this, it means you fight for it too. Politics follows faith, no distinction between mosque and state. You remember all that? So if the point is that the world in the Quran was a better place than this world well then let's go back let's Uh, stone adulterers, let's cut off the hands of thieves, let's kill the unbelievers. And so, even if you're one of those lapsed Muslims sipping your after-dinner scotch alongside your beautiful white American wife and watching the news and seeing folks in the Middle East dying for values you were taught were purer and stricter and truer, you can't help but feel just a little bit of pride. Yes, pride. Did I, what? Did I feel pride on September 11th? If I'm honest, yes. I was horrified by it, okay? Absolutely horrified. But I just kept thinking, we were finally winning. Yeah, I forgot which we I
1: was.
2: And with that, the actor, And the scene he's just brought to life retreat to the back of the stage
1: like amir's dinner guests i was a little taken aback by the intensity with which he went after the faith into which we'd both been born there was certainly some precedent for it in my own life i'd been hearing my father rail on since childhood about the idiocy of organized religion in general and islam in particular and yes Amir had some of my father's traits, uh, the hint of grandiosity, the unhealthy passion for fine single malt whiskey, but even the evident parallels in my personal biography could not prepare me for the violent currents running beneath the story I was writing. The antagonism ignited by Amir's shocking self-revelation stokes racial and ethnic tensions between the quartet of characters. The dinner party disintegrates And the evening ends with a shocking moment of violence that disturbs audiences, disturbed me when I wrote it, and still disturbs me to think about. I think the play knew something about where we were headed as a nation that I didn't, at least not consciously. A breakdown in civil discourse, civil space, civil exchange. A rise of naked tribalism as a central pervasive axis in American experience. The play would win the Pulitzer Prize for drama in 2013, and would become the occasion, I was told, for the first Muslim leading man character on Broadway. When I was writing it, though, I didn't know any of those wonderful things were going to happen. The weekend after finishing my first draft of Disgraced, I was sitting on my couch in my apartment in Harlem, staring up at the ceiling as I sipped from a cup of tea. All at once, another idea snapped into place. It wasn't unusual for me to have ideas, but these were different, these were more than ideas. They teemed with life, characters jabbering away, me playing catch-up with my pencil and notebook. The New York Times journalist David Rode had recently escaped, managed a thrilling escape from his captors in Afghanistan. And at the same time, the world was drowning in a new economic mess, courtesy of mortgages and contemporary finance. Like I said, I had just finished *Disgrace*, which ended with a scene in which my main character, Amir, reflects back on the country of his parents' birth. This new idea began in that country and would end up marrying a kidnapping and captive narrative with a critique of the abuses of global finance. The story that emerged over the following months would become a play called The Invisible Hand, a reference to Adam Smith's idea that enlightened self-interest regulates free markets. The story would revolve around a white American investment banker working in Pakistan. The banker's name is Nick Bright. He has a degree from Princeton, a background in trading, and his work has consisted of building a plan with local magnates to privatize water in a district of Punjab. This has landed him in the crosshairs of a local militia which is trying to protect its population and its turf. The militia is led by an inspiring and idealistic imam named Salim, who orders Nick's kidnapping. To Nick, and to most Western audience members, Salim is a terrorist, pure and simple. To himself, though, Salim is something very, very different.
2: Again, Rajesh Bose moves to the front of the stage, though now, He's not a lawyer in America, but someone very different.
3: When I started out in the world as a young man. It was as a journalist writing for the newspaper in Bahawalpur, south of Lahore. That was home, where I was raised, where my family is from. I knew the place, I knew the people. I wrote local news. Stories I hoped would make some difference. A village's entire year's wheat crop lost in a fire. A new technique for digging wells that made it easier for farmers to irrigate their fields. I wrote a lot about farmers. A child born to a sharecropper's family who had a remarkable ability in maths. Truly remarkable. That article was a success. Someone with the power to do something read it. That young boy got a scholarship to study in London. The one thing I couldn't write about, the one thing that really mattered, was corruption. There is a road from eastern Bahawalpo to the outlying villages, a road some fifty, a hundred thousand people depend on. Nangni Road, unusable, pockmarked with potholes the size of a city bus. Every year in local council, Nangni Road was at the top of the list. Every year it was brought up in Parliament. Every year it was voted on, approved, paid for, for ten years. But the road has never been fixed. I wrote an article, told the story of where that money might have been going. My editor killed it. Of course, I was fired, lectured about how I should know better. Two days later, my father was coming home from work. Three men ambushed him. They beat him to the ground with chains. He was left on the side of the road. They told him, Tell your son not to worry about Nangni Road. It's fine, just the way it is. For three days he survived, long enough to berate me for my foolishness. You see? We are prisoners of a corrupt country that is of our own making. But don't pretend you and your bank don't participate. You do. Of course you do, Mr. Nick Bright. That's your job, to grease the wheels, to rape and plunder the nation.
2: The actor draws back, the voice of his character still hanging in the air, and Ayad speaks again in his own voice.
1: Salim's story was a version of one I'd heard so many times in trips to my parents' home country. An entrenched, corrupt, parasitic political system, the predations of the interfering and meddlesome West, blistering social tensions, eroding the state's control over the use of violence. Indeed, this was the story of what had become of Pakistan, my parents' homeland. But it wasn't just Pakistan's story. I saw it happening across the entire globe. Saw it on the verge of happening here in America. Political corruption leading to the breakdown of legitimacy and coherency in the political system. The resulting conclusion that everyone was on their own and that only the individual and not the system could ever effect true change. And from that despairing conclusion to the emergence of widespread social violence is a short and inevitable distance indeed. I had grown up in a home in an immigrant community that talked incessantly about politics because politics and life were always intertwined. My community had celebrated Ronald Reagan in 1986 when he'd had precursors to the Taliban from Afghanistan over to the White House, had marched them out into the Rose Garden where he dubbed them the quote, moral equivalent of the founding fathers. We felt proud to have people from our part of the world acknowledged in such glowing terms by the leader of the so-called free world. And so many in the community I came from would undergo a terrifying cultural whiplash when America's relationship to our part of the world changed. It was dizzying. And even more troubling was that the tale America told about this transformation was only part of the real story.
2: Despite Ms. Durfler's best efforts, Eyad Akhtar never did become a European modernist. What he became instead is far more relevant, exciting, and surprising, especially in the context of the times we're living in. An artist who, in writing stories about complex Muslim characters in morally ambiguous situations, refuses to settle for the comfortable truth when the uncomfortable, far more necessary truth is within his sight.
1: I recall an event I did in Chicago in the wake of the opening of Disgraced and the publication of American Dervish. It was an audience of some 300 people. Sitting along the very front row were a dozen Pakistani women in their early and mid-30s, arms folded across their chests, watching me askance as I spoke. During the Q&A, one of them raised her hand and stood up. Hello. I have come with my friends from the suburbs. We were all born in Pakistan. We all have children born here. We read your book. We saw your play. These ladies are not going to raise their hands to address you. I am the only one willing to talk to you. I want you to know that we came here today to understand how to make sure our children do not turn out like you. (laughs) (laughs) My parents were more accepting. (laughs) Delighted, of course, that I finally seemed to be finding my way. Prizes and articles in the paper don't make you a better writer, but they do make your mother feel better about you not having become a neurologist. (laughs) Like the younger version of myself as a writer, my parents were surprised that anybody would find value in stories about folks like us. So, in addition to their delight, there was a fair measure of disbelief, confusion about what people were seeing and what I was doing. They understood the complaint some of their friends had with me. Why doesn't he make us look better? They understood the complaint without endorsing it. This question of being made to look better is not without importance. In a time when Muslims are beleaguered and besieged, I can understand the desire for a corrective, a voice out there that makes people see Muslims as good guys too. The problem is, that's not art, that's advertising. Art in the hands of my greatest mentor, Miss Durfler, was always in service of seeking truth, the truth of life, the complicated truths of characters, the buried truths at the heart of a community's sorrows. Admittedly, the representations that result may not be of use in a culture war where Muslims are under attack. I don't know if that's an indictment of art's limited capacity for social change or an indictment of the culture wars themselves. Whatever the case, whatever my misgivings, and I have them, I can't deny that this struggle to be seen not as good, but as we are, is at the heart of a creative friction, which I think is the only real and enduring pathway into a true American identity. Thank you.
2: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. To hear Ayad Akhtar's unedited talk, To explore the free archive of Sun Valley Writers' Conference recordings, and to learn more about the conference, please visit svwc.com.
0: Beyond the Page
3: is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shilliday, Michael Neese, and the Network Studios.